Welcome to Change Agents, Conversations About Human Rights. Five days from now will be the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht, when Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses and homes and terrorized Jewish families on November 9th and 10th in Germany, Austria, and in Sudetenland, a portion of Czechoslovakia that Germany had annexed. We will discuss a remarkable and disturbing book about Kristallnacht. We also will discuss the current level of anti-Semitism in U.S. schools. My guests are Catherine Scher. She teaches a class on Holocaust for eighth graders at her synagogue congregation, Beth Haham, in South Portland, and two of her students, Natalie and Joya. Natalie, Joya, Catherine, and I will be uh, reading some of excerpts from the book. These passages are very disturbing. They may not be something that is appropriate for young children. So, Catherine, why did you decide that you wanted to teach a course on the Holocaust? Well, I was um, I was asked to teach this course by um, the rabbi here at Betaham. Initially, years ago, there was an instructor who taught a Holocaust um, course here. And then there was a, a gap of time when we, they did not have a teacher to fulfill that role. So I was asked to um, teach the class and, and uh, I, I volunteered. Uh, I did not have a curriculum. There is not a text out there so much that says, this is what you need to do step by step. At least there wasn't when I initially started. But I did a lot of research, and I even went to D.C. to the Holocaust Museum. My daughter lives there, and um, I went to visit her, and I went to the museum, and I went to the education department and talked about my uh, dilemma or the situation, and they were extremely helpful. Well, that, that, that's... They were, they were very helpful at the Holocaust Museum, at the education department. Um, and do you find this, that the subject is, is hard to teach? Uh, initially, I would say it, it was hard uh, there, for a couple of reasons. One, because the, the subject matter is so um, difficult and, and disturbing. Uh, but secondly, also to try to figure out how to teach it to middle school students to make it um, meaningful um, and um, uh, interest, interesting for them and something that they can um, absorb uh, as well. Thanks. And, and that leads me uh, to ask uh, either Joy or Natalie, either one can start first, as to um, this is disturbing. Uh, uh, how do you deal with that? Uh, are you able to sort of push it away when the class is over? Uh, how are you feeling right now about uh, about halfway through your course? So, well, when 
when I'm thinking about what really happened, it's terrible. Um, how it happened, why it happened, what happened. Um, and when you're thinking about it or when you're being taught about it, um, it really does, um, it makes an impact on how you think about other things. Cause I mean, there's plenty of um, other stuff that it, it's not on the same scale, but it gets you thinking in this way. Um, history tends to repeat itself. So um, as you're looking at things that happened in the past, you wonder when is it going to happen again? Because history is really about uh, learning what not to do. Um, but I don't think anyone actually listens to that. So, uh, Thank you. That was superb. Um, so uh, uh, do we have uh, a thought from uh, from you um, wait. So. yeah definitely it's such a difficult topic to talk about and hear about and um, this terrible thing that has happened in the past has totally shaped the ideas um, of today's world and I think that we should be paying more attention to those events and learning from them rather than um, keeping those ideas and like uh, continuing forward with that. And yeah, it's definitely uh, such a terrible thing. And I, um, yeah, but. Um, thank you for your answers. If, um, if I hadn't already known that you were eighth graders, I would have said you were um, uh, seniors in high school. Uh, that um, just really great responses. So last spring, Amy Brown, um, WERU's Director of News and Public Affairs, sent me information on a book on about Kristallnacht. Uh, she thought this might be a good show uh, to talk about. And I read the book and I agreed with Amy and, uh, at least for part of this session, uh, we are going to be talking about crystal milk. Uh, and I'll, I want to give a little background. Um, on the morning of November 7th, 1938, a 17-year-old boy named Herschel Grinspan a Jewish student went to the German embassy in Paris. He was upset because Germany had expelled Polish Jews living in Germany, including his parents. He then turned and shot and killed a German diplomat who died later that day. Hitler used this murder as a pretext for dramatically attacking Jews in Germany. Two evenings after the shooting in, in Paris, 
Nazi paramilitary and Hitler Youth destroyed businesses across Germany, Austria. Kristallnacht is trans translated in the English means the night of broken glass. And that's the name of the book, uh, which for anybody who's interested, uh, you can get it uh, on virtually any, any bookstore. So, so that is what I and many other people understood was about Kristallnacht. The Kristallnacht was that uh, Germans came in to stores, they um, broke all the glasses, they, um, they created havoc on uh, uh, everything from typewriters to anything else and broke it. And, uh, and that's accurate. In 19, uh, I think maybe late 39, uh, researchers at Harvard University sent letters across the US and to the UK and to other places where um, German Jews would have left um, Germany and said, uh, we're going to have a contest and there will be a prize for the best um, uh, essay that you were going to write about uh, what happened to you in Germany because of Germany. So this was before the Holocaust. 250 manuscripts were submitted, which is a lot. Uh, quite a few from the U.S., but, pe but from, uh, uh, from the United Kingdom, from uh, probably some from Palestine, uh, uh, certainly some from Australia as well. But, but it never got published, and it's unclear why. And more than that, all of those manuscripts written by uh, Jews were lost for 68 years until a researcher by accident found them. And then there was a process of trying to figure out what was there. Uh, my guess is some of this, a lot of it was in English, but a lot of it probably was in German as well. So there was translations. And what the book is, it's uh, 217 pages of the essays that people wrote. And what we're going to do now is uh, between uh, Natalie and Julia and then um, with uh, Catherine and then me going to be reading portions of this. This is really disturbing. And we're going to learn that uh, what 
Kusunak was was much more than uh, just coming in the stores and uh, destroying them. That's bad enough. If you are listening with young children, I suggest you think about whether or not uh, you want to listen to it now. You can always listen to it online. So you are listening to Change Agents on WERU. My guests are Catherine Cher. Catherine teaches eighth graders about the Holocaust at the Congregation Bethlehem in South Portland. Joy and Natalie are also with us, and they are two of her students. We will be discussing Kristallnacht when Hitler and Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses, stores, and much more, as we will hear, in both Germany and Austria. We will also turn to another topic, which involves discussing anti-Semitism in U.S. schools. We will read about first-person narratives about Kristallnacht. These narratives are very disturbing. Parents may want to turn off the radio if you have young children with you. So, Natalie and Julia, could you, uh, I'm not sure how you, uh, who's going first? Actually, Steve, I think I am. Okay, perfect. So, Catherine, take it away. This is account, an account by Rudolf Bing, born in Nuremberg in 1876, lawyer, married, two daughters, emigrated to Palestine in 1939 and died there in 1963. In Nuremberg, we lived on the first floor of a large apartment building that was owned by my family and that had a very large empty courtyard with outbuildings and storehouses. About three o'clock in the morning, my wife and I were awoken. We heard a dreadful bellowing by the front door and in the dark, I saw a great many people standing in front of the building. All the doorbells were being rung and voices were shouting, open up, open up immediately. I immediately called police headquarters and after giving my name said, a mob is trying to break into my building. Are you Aryan? asked a female voice. No, I answered. She hung up without saying anything further. In the meantime, the people in the front of the building had broken through the door panels. They had brought the necessary tools such as axes and the like with them. They stormed up the stairs to the upper floors. We were alone in the apartment because of well-known difficulties that Jews had in finding servants, we had long had to manage for ourselves without help. Words cannot express what I owe to the presence of mind and clarity of my beloved wife, who even though she was suffering, did not lose her head for one moment during these critical minutes. We heard plaintive cries from the stairway. Apparently a Jewish neighbor, we recognized his voice, was being beaten. We want to avoid falling into their hands at any price. It was my wife who first made this decision. In the past, we had, half in jest, 
thought about how we could escape from our apartment in the event that we were in danger of being arrested. We now acted accordingly. We locked the door to the apartment and then the doors to our bedroom with the adjoining dressing room, tied linen bed sheets together and attached them to the window frame. I expressed my concern as to whether it would hold our weight. We could already hear the door to our apartment being broken down. The window of the dressing room looked out into a narrow street opposite a hops storehouse. In front of it, opposite the window, was a porch roof that was somewhat lower. This roof was two and a half meters from our window. Making a quick decision, I threw a mattress onto the porch roof and leapt across the street onto it, then threw the mattress to the ground and jumped down. Above me, the people were forcing their way into our apartment. My wife didn't believe that the window frame and the bed sheets would hold. Suddenly, she was hanging by her fingertips from the windowsill and then let go. From underneath on the mattress I had thrown down, I was standing there. Naturally, I fell over with my burden, but the mattress cushioned our fall. We were saved. The height from which my wife let herself fall was that of a normal first floor. I estimated it to be about 10 meters. Everything happened in a few seconds. As dawn approached, we knocked on the door of a Christian family who lived in the back building and on whose loyalty we could rely. We learned that the mob had left our apartment. We then returned home. It was an indescribable, indescribable sight. In the rooms, we literally waded through ruins and shards. The windows and all the crockery were shattered. All the cupboards had been overturned and smashed with chair legs and axes. My pictures, including several valuable oils of which I was proud, had been slashed. The stuffing from the ripped open upholstered furniture was strewn around the whole apartment. Not a single chair or table was still intact. The radio had obviously been trampled with boots. Most of the Jewish apartments in the city looked the same and all the shops had been completely destroyed. Soon, however, we heard much sadder news. The preceding afternoon, my wife had seen three of her girlfriends in our apartment where she regularly met with them once a month. The husband of one of her friends had been beaten to death the night in front of his, the night before in front of his wife. And she these to her face. The husband of her second friend had been injured in the face and head and remained in critical condition for months. As a, consequences, as a consequence, one of his arms was permanently paralyzed and he suffered from significant speech difficulties. The husband of her third friend had been taken from their apartment and was on his way to the concentration camp in Dachau. If I tried to describe the consequences of that night for my immediate circle of acquaintances, I would have to write a whole book about them. A woman friend of ours lived alone with her three-year-old daughter. The barbarians forced their way even into her daughter's room and smashed her dolls and toys before the weeping child's eyes. And with mocking words, they told her mother, you can drown your brat in the Jordan. Another lady in our circle of friends was alone in her apartment. After the gang had finished its work there, the leader walked up to her, hit her in the face and said, 
There, you have revenge for Paris. Another acquaintance, still under the effects of an anesthetic and bandaged after a hernia operation that was not itself dangerous, lay in a Jewish hospital in Firth. Police officers came to transport him to Dachau. They ordered him to get up. He had to obey, and after a few minutes, he fell dead of a heart attack. In the street alone, where my wife's friend's husband was killed, three other men had been beaten to death. Everywhere, we heard of people who had committed suicide in despair. Two widows who chose this way out are known to me by name. Um, thank you for reading that. And, uh, and uh, Natalie and Julia, um, which of you is starting first? Okay. Um, and uh, why don't you just say your name uh, before you start? I'm Natalie, and this is from Carl E. Schwab. Born in 1891 in Hanau, married, two children, shopkeeper, emigrated to London in April 1939. From there to the USA, died in Philadelphia in 1967. On the evening of the 9th of November, my English teacher, a Christian artist, came to visit. When he tried to leave at about 10.30 to go home, two uniform were standing in front of our garden gate. What did they want? We waited an hour, a whole half hour, and they were still standing there. Finally, Air W climbed over the garden fence behind the building and was fortunately able to get home without being noticed. I felt very uneasy and apprehensive. I told my wife how I felt and we tried to calm each other. I prepared to go to my shop as usual and stood there in hat and overcoat waiting for the little daughter, whom I always took to school in the morning. The doorbell rang and I myself opened the door. Two men in civilian clothing stood there. Gestapo, are you Air Schwab? Come with me. All dreadfully frightened. They refused to explain the grounds for my arrest. I had a clear conscience and tried to console my wife. Marie quickly prepared a couple of sandwiches for me, and then I followed the officers. At first, we were put into a dark cell where there were already a number of arrestees, and then one after another, we were taken to register. We had to give our personal details and hand over the contents of our pockets. Then we were allocated to various cells. Of course, the prison was not designed for such, such a massive number of arrests. More and more people came in from the city and surrounding areas. And Julia? Uh, okay. uh, my name is Julia. Um, on Monday, uh, the 13th of November, after standing all morning, we sat from one o'clock to six on the cold bear. No one was allowed to stand up or go to the toilet. SS men I saw people fall to the ground. An old man and Julia, you need to speak uh, louder. 
Okay. Uh, should I restart or? I don't know. Just you can uh, start where you where you are. On that day, people were literally beaten to death. Many soiled themselves. There was neither water for washing nor a change of linen. At night, the hysterics reached worse than ever. The sentries threatened to shoot into the barracks. And the electrified the morning, I saw their naked bodies lying in the mud. Slowly, things got a little better. The treatment lessened. The worst That was my first day in Buchenwald. Many similar ones followed. I cannot and do not want to describe all the details. It was a series of endless physical and mental suffering. First days for the work. supply and none of it was given to us. Our mouths dried out completely. Our throats burned. Our tongues literally stuck to our palates. When on the third day bread was distributed, I couldn't get it down. I had no saliva. The nights were terrible. People had attacks of hysteria. One man shouted that they were trying to kill him. Another delivered, delivered a kind of sermon. A third babbled about electrical waves. In between cries, crying, crying, cursing, coughing, it was as if all hell had broken out. Sanitary conditions defy description. We wish doctors had been taken prisoner with us if they could, but there was hardly any way to help. People ill with pneumonia, separating middle ears and other diseases lay feverish in the barracks. Almost everyone had diarrhea. Money for medicine was collected, and now and then we got a few drops of opium or charcoal tablets. But as soon as this was known, patients crowded in and most people got nothing. Later on, a sick room was set up in a cold, dark wash house, and here the dying lay on dirty straw mattresses. Anyone who had to go to the wash house was given up for dead. The SS men were, with few exceptions, fiendish brutes. The commandant, a big fellow with a ruddy bullish face, always had his riding whip with him, and not for nothing. They were all crude and mean. We were called the Jewish swine. A boy whose father had died up there was told about the death with the words, the bird's dead, dismissed. An SS man said, as a coffin was carried past him, let me see the dead Jew. I saw and experienced something similar every day. About 10 days after our, our arrival, they stopped giving us spoons without our meals. Anyone who didn't have one or couldn't get one ate out of the bowl like a dog. I was happy when the previously mentioned bedfellow left me his spoon as a farewell gift. Days later, I was released. So to, to give uh, everyone a sense of how, how broad this was in terms of uh, putting people into Jewish men into uh, concentration camps, uh, 30 to 40,000 German Jewish men went into either Dachau, Buchenwald, or Sachsenhaus. The number of Jews killed during the 9th and 10th of November and in the weeks after are thought to be 
over 400. The number of Jews who committed suicide is unclear. Most of the men were released by the end of December, but some apparently did not get released. The Jewish families that were most fortunate were able to come to the United States, to the United Kingdom, to Australia, to Palestine. Those who did not leave died in in the worst possible way in genocide in Auschwitz and other death camps. But what happened after Kristallnacht, or after the shooting in Paris, didn't end that. The German government enacted new laws and edicts against Jews. Jews were prohibited to go to school. Uh, either Natalie or Julia, if you had been there, school was over. Jews were prohibited to practice their professions. Lawyers could not practice law. Doctors could not practice medicine. Jews were prohibited from driving cars. They couldn't, weren't allowed to have a, a driver's license. Aryans, which refers to so-called pure Germans, were allowed to take the ownership of Jewish homes and businesses for very small amounts of money. Unfortunately, the number of Jews that were able to get out of Germany uh, was not enough. I'm going to read one. Uh, well, in a minute, we'll read one more. I want to remind people who have just come in uh, that you are listening to Change Agents on WERU. My guests are Catherine Scher. Uh, Catherine teaches eighth graders about the Holocaust at the congregation at Aham in South Portland. Julia and Natalie are two of her students. We will be discuss, discussing, or we have been discussing, Kristallnacht when Hitler and the Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses and stores across Germany. We will also discuss anti-Semitism in schools across the U.S. For those of you who have just come in, uh, some of the descriptions uh, are really disturbing. If you have young children with you, you may want to uh, turn off the radio and uh, finish listening online. Uh, I will uh, read a third first-person narrative. Carl Rosenthal, born in 1885, married with two sons from 1924. He was the rabbi of the Berlin Reform Community. He was arrested on November 11th, released from a concentration camp in 1938, and he died in Oxford in 
in London, 1952. Here is what he wrote. So there I was, a prisoner, exactly 20 years to the day after the arm armistice of 1918. That was after the end of the First World War. When the Nazis had come to power, they declared that the rights of Jewish veterans of the world would not be uh, honored. Hitler broke his promise like all others. From 1914 to 1918, I fought for Germany on the front. I was twice wounded and was decorated with iron, an iron cross and other arms. We were five brothers in the field. Two of us died in the war, and uh, others have had illnesses coming from the war. It was about 6.15 in the evening when I was detained. We stood for hours at the same spot in the courtyard in freezing cold. Our feet began to hurt in the gloom. I recognized the man on my right side. He was a rabbi from Berlin. We secretly shook hands. I was silently worrying that we would be taken to concentration, to a concentration camp, not just a, a place where we would be held for a while. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. When we got to the concentration camp, two SS men climbed out of the truck and kicked prisoners getting out. You swine, still have your hats on your heads, he cried, and savagely struck people on the head. One of them received a terrible kick in the back so that he flew off the truck. When I, went, when I was thrown off, I went down to pick up my belongings, which were all scattered. I got another kick. He was said, will you get a move on, you old Jewish pig? At this moment, one of my unfortunate Jewish companions suffered being thrown down from the truck, and it was such a terrible blow that he remained lying on the ground with large gaping wounds on his head and forehead. Blood was streaming on his face and his overcoat. Get going, you damn Jew. The SS men were shouting. One of the older prisoners who had who had to supervise us had to bring us along a sign that was attached to a stake. And the SS man ordered each of us to hold the sign for a while and then pass it to the other. On the sign was painted in large letters, we are responsible for the murder of Herr von Rath, the man who was killed in, in Paris. The SS man saw to it that each of us held up the sign high, and then he made us have a separate poster that said, we are the destroyers of German culture. The SS men 
continued their senseless and arbitrary beatings. Not for a moment could we be sure that we would not be beaten. Not for a moment that could we be sure that we would not be kicked or struck on the head from behind or receive an SSS man's blow of a, a blow in the face. The fear of these repeated abuses wore us down. We had not yet come to terms with the dreadful and unexpected, unexpected situation we were in. So, for, for either any of you, how, how has this affected you? How, um, what you've read and what you've, what you've heard affected you now? And I guess I'll, I'll start. Uh, I've read a lot about the Holocaust, but this part of it, which was before, really, the Germans decided to kill as many Jews as possible uh, and try to imagine what it would have been like if that was me. It was scary. And just so hard to imagine what that was like and what was going to become later to those who were still there. So, somebody else? Catherine? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I have, um, you know, I've read about and heard about Kristallnacht for, for many years, but it really wasn't until I read portions of this text that I appreciated how much the whole the whole population was was terrorized um, as as a group and and as an individual like you I had always thought that it was just the businesses um, and the synagogues which I know were burned um, but to to go into people's homes and apartments and wreak havoc and destruction um, was was new information for me. Um, and and um, it's clear to me from what I've been reading that um, historians understood this this game. But what what changed with this book? is the stories. Uh, I mean, there are multiple, multiple more stories. Uh, Julia, how did this affect you? Um, with um, what I was reading, um, it was all very dehumanizing, kind of. Um, it, it was as if Jews weren't people. They were, um, it was as though Germany was treating them like some sort of disease that had plagued their country. They had to exterminate or torture to get rid of go away. Um, and they weren't treated like people in any other way really either because um, they weren't given spoons anymore at some point. Um, they weren't given medicine or water basic human needs um so yeah 
Uh, Julia, you've said that so well, and as you continue through your course, um, going up to the uh, the death camps, Auschwitz and others, you're going to see uh, exactly what you described, that uh, Jews will not consider uh, in some way that has not been almost human. Uh, And they certainly uh, were treated as if they were not. Uh, Natalie, your thoughts? Yeah, when I had learned about this in the past, I had learned about the factual side of it and the facts of things that happened. But after reading this, uh, it got a lot more personal with everyone's individual stories and just how terrible it was to be in the situation and how these different people were treated. Like Julia was saying, it was so terrible and they weren't treated like human beings. Um, yeah, so it was, it's definitely, uh, it felt a lot more personal uh, to be hearing these stories and just how terrible the uh, conditions were for them. Yeah, I, 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 I can't even imagine what the terror was. And what, what we don't have is uh, first-person accounts from, from teenagers like yours. Um, that they, were, they were seeing this. This was happening. Their, uh, their fathers were being taken away. And, uh, uh, so we have, uh, I know you're going to have to, to leave in about... Uh, uh, seven or eight uh, minutes, and uh, I wanted to to talk about a uh, a different topic, uh, and that is uh, what the level of anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. Uh, degrading comments, so-called jokes are in high schools. I've been collecting information from students, both Jewish and non-Jewish, about this over a period of, of years. And when I talked with um, uh, uh, both you, uh, Natalie and Julia, in your synagogue uh, a, a week or so ago, uh, I, I asked everyone uh, to write, if they could, about an incident of anti-Semitism in their school. Everybody had at least one. Uh, what I'm going to do now is to uh, read some of the of the comments that are frequently heard in schools. Uh, and actually, it's not just in US schools, because I, I collected the similar information coming from in schools, English-speaking schools in uh, Eastern Europe and in Northern Ireland. For those of you who uh, are listening with children, uh, uh, just be aware that I'm going to be reading things that are deeply concerning. 
there would be one second when we get, get those out. Stereotypes. Jews have big noses. They are cheap and sting, stingy. They are dishonest. Non-Jewish students throw coins at Jewish students. By the way, not all of these happen in every school, but they happen in enough. Many students in schools, both in Maine and elsewhere, have seen swastikas drawn in their schools. Some students uh, make the Nazi salute and say, Heil Hitler. Some students said, Hitler should have killed all the Jews. Some tell so-called jokes about the Holocaust. They're not jokes. What's the difference between a Jew and Santa Claus? Santa goes down the chimney. Students hear the Holocaust didn't happen. The Holocaust is a fake. What's the difference between a pizza and a Jew? The pizza doesn't scream when you put it in the oven. So did um, Joy or Natalie, did uh, you have any comments that you heard or overheard? Either of you? That, that's no for, for you? Okay. Did you have anything? Uh, I know there were students um, who wrote uh, in, your, in your class in the synagogue about, uh, about uh, the Holocaust not being real or safe. Did either of you hear those? Well, I mean, this was kind of back in sixth grade. Um, it's, it's more just a doubt that something so severe could have happened. Maybe they downplay it. Uh, like, not that many people died. Um, that didn't happen during that. It's not that they don't believe the Holocaust. Don't believe the Holocaust is what the Holocaust is. Um, and... Catherine, do you have any comments and, and perhaps thinking back to uh, when you were in, in middle or high school? Well, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting that, that when I was in middle school um, and, and high school, we learned, we learned very little about this at all. We did have a, we did have a unit on the Second World War, but the, the whole portion of it about the Holocaust was totally downplayed at all. There were jokes in my high school about the, the Jews that were in my high school that their parents could afford uh, to send them to very expensive private schools and that other students had to go to the state universities because their parents didn't have money. So there were, So insinuating that Jews were smart, but also that their families had money and that they were privileged enough to be able to um, go to these particular institutions. Thank you. Um, and uh, what about what about um, uh, about you? Um, 
uh, Natalie, but uh, just even um, hearing about these. What's yeah, I have um, I have not heard nearly as bad as those comments, but even knowing that they have been made and um, that students are making those comments elsewhere, it's it's really hurtful and uh, just kind of disgusting. And like this was such a huge event, and that they aren't. Uh, respectful about it, kind of, but they're they're just not like understanding that makes sense. Yeah, but thank you. Um, I know you need to leave now, um, and I just want to thank all three of you for uh, your comments and thoughts, and uh, and uh, thank you, Catherine, for the course you're teaching, um, but for both. Uh, Julian and Natalie, uh, you spoke eloquently about really awful things. And thank you very much. Uh, so, hey, thank uh, you for having us and inviting us. Uh, I will be back in touch. Okay. Bye. -bye. Right, bye, -bye. Yeah. Uh, so I want to uh, continue in our. Um, uh, last part of this uh, to talk about my concerns about the degrading language and so-called jokes that I have found uh, in, in Maine, across the country, and out of the country. And the first is, how, how does that impact students? Uh, who are in a school that has, and they're hearing this a lot. Uh, and I'm going to read you four comments from Jewish students. The question was, how does hearing these words, and sometimes it's, it's a gesture, such as uh, raising your hand uh, in a Nazi salute. And here's the first one. Anti-Jewish bias increases when students are studying the Holocaust. Now that, we, we would hope. Most of us would be surprised at that. And I've heard it time after time. Uh, it's not that they're saying that in school, uh, excuse me, in their whole, when they're studying the Holocaust, but they are, uh, but they're doing it outside and uh, deeply disturbing to me. Another student, anti-Semitism hurts. It's an awful type of stereotyping. One would figure that after the Holocaust, ethics of how to treat Jews, just like everyone else, would be passed down. I guess not. A third comment. I think that subconsciously I've become less sure of my religion. This is literally because of the jokes and anti-religious stereotypes and jokes I hear. And one more. When someone finds out that I'm Jewish, the reaction is never positive. I think the constant idea impressed on me by this is that 
Jews have a negative connotation from the perspective of non-Jewish students. And what has it, how has it affected me? It's separated myself further from my religion. I've heard other versions of this. So at one point, I'm just worried about how this is affecting Jewish students. And, and there's a range of it. I certainly have students said it's made me stronger. I'm going to speak up uh, more. Uh, I remember then when one of my sons was in middle school, a student came out to him just before the bus. Uh, he got onto the bus to go home and gave him a, a picture and explained that it was uh, Nazi planes shooting and killing Jews and then said to my son, who was a sixth grader um, or a seventh grader, I can't remember, uh, uh, I wish Hitler had killed all the Jews, including me. But what happened was that a wonderful principal came back and asked us if it was okay for her to ask my son if he would talk to this boy with the principal being there. And he said yes. I'm not sure I would have said yes at his age. And they talked. And while they didn't have a lot in common during their high school, they actually became friends. And uh, the, the boy who said those things, I think, was sorry about it after he, my son explained why that was so, such an awful thing to say. So there's hope, but there are also cons further concerns. I think the, what concerns me my mo most is that if anti-Semitism increases in the U.S. in a significant way, if that happens, whether uh, it happens five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, and very likely it won't happen, but if it did, I worry about the boys and the girls who in middle school and high school heard significant numbers of degrading languages. As we heard from some of the, the, the students in Catherine's class, when they are in their 20s or 30s or maybe even older and things got worse, are they going to stand up and say, this is un-American, this should not happen to anyone, it should not happen to Jews, or are they going to, and for many of those people, maybe the only thing they really know about Jews is the stereotypes and the so-called disgusting jokes about Jews.
So what can we do? Whether we are Jewish, whether we are Muslim, whether we are Christian, whether we are not religious or any other forms of religion, is, is to speak up. And if we have lost the ability to speak up when the comment heard was said, to go to the person, whether it's Jewish or it's Muslim or it's somebody else, and say, are you okay? I'm so sorry that happened. That makes, that makes such a difference to people. It makes them realize that it's not everybody. Because it isn't. It's, it's a small number, but it's a small number that is significant. You are listening to Change Agents on WERU. My guests have been Kathleen Scher and two eighth grade girls, Natalie and Julia. Uh, we have been talking about Kristallnacht and uh, how Kristallnacht was far more dangerous and deadly than many of us knew. Uh, we have just discussed anti-Semitism directed at uh, Jews in high school, something that in my work I've seen uh, significantly and uh, schools in Maine experience. Uh, uh, you are listening to WERU-FM uh, uh, on the radio or uh, getting on the website. Uh, thank you very, very much.